Welcome to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRAR. I'm Alex Gehring. And I'm Bobby Howe. Bobby, where are we? <gasps> We're in the studio. Weird. And it looks amazing. It's crazy. And it's super cold in here. Guys, you guys need to know that. I'm there's freezing. There's soundproofing everywhere. And um, in my headphones, I can hear Bobby's uh, teeth chattering. Yeah, exactly. That's what everyone's going to hear this entire episode. Bobby's wearing like marathon runner outfit. I'm not. I'm wearing a nice <laughs> pair of shorts and a real. I'm spa- I'm actually promoting another realtor right now with my shirt. Yeah, what's it say? My shirt says. Hate has no home here. There we go. The rainbow house is across the front. Yeah. And it's Drew and Andrew's shirt. I love Drew and Andrew. I love it. They're my favorites. So. Well, that's awesome. Well, what are you up to? You just got done with a big run. I, I, d- I did. I didn't yeah, die. That yeah. was that was good. I like not dying when I run. So we just did a 200-mile relay race from the top of Mount Hood in Oregon to Seaside, Oregon, which is literally on the, the finish line, is on the beach. And it was 12 realtor runners from across the country. And we had two vans, six people in each, plus a driver. We had some amazing people. We had... Um, Guest of the podcast, Tommy Choi, Maura Neal, Elizabeth Mendenhall, NAR past president, um, Vince Malta, Nate Johnson. Nate Johnson's been a guest of the podcast, right? Yeah, he yes. So we had a lot of guests of the podcast um, running with us. And there's actually a few other people in the group that actually now that I'm thinking about it would actually make great guests of the podcast. So Wow. There's a theme there. Yeah. We could almost be sponsored by KCRER. And real time. Oh, and so what part of the relay did you run? Were you running down the mountain? No, that was Nate Johnson, and he almost never walked ever again. Yeah. So he had been a driver last year. Okay. And um, the person who ran leg one works for NAR. They had a conflict. They couldn't do it this year. So Nate moved over to the runner category, and he ran six miles straight downhill with a 6% grade. And he was like, I can't repeat the exact words he used when he got to the bottom of the hill. Because they're not, we would get a big red X and Amber would yell at me. But he said this was uh, BS when he got to the bottom of the hill. And then we were really worried that he wasn't going to be able to run again. His very last leg, um, he was sleeping in a field and we had five minutes before the next runner came in. We thought because we really didn't have um, any cell phone communication because at one point you go for about 12 hours without any cell phone coverage. Yeah. Which means you can't talk to the other team and know where they are at and Nate was still sleeping in a field and we're all like shaking (laughs) Nate Nate you have to get up Nate you have to get up so we get him up we get him dressed we're coming up to the exchange and he's like I gotta use the honey bucket which honey bucket is the word in Oregon for a porta potty (laughs) now that you all have know that and so he's like I gotta use the honey bucket and like I hear them call our team number 109 and I was like there's Mora you've gotta go Nate you've gotta go and he's like but I didn't potty why do I envision that this is how most mornings with Nate are probably like when yeah. people are trying to wake him up? Wake him up and get him going. But yeah, because the, <laughs> we, our team found his team out in the field and they're just like slowly taking their time. And we're like, where's Nate? And they're like, he's still sleeping. We're like, we have to get Nate going. And they're like, we'll go get him then. And we're like, you guys, come on now. Uh, but it was a great time. And then we stayed for two extra days uh, on the Oregon coast in a gorgeous little uh coastal town called Rockaway Beach, tiny little thing. And okay. then we even took a field trip um, on day two the, to the Tillamook Creamery, their uh, their factory. And so we got to watch cheese being made. Wow. We got to um, sample their ice cream. Yeah. And we got to see some cows. What kind of cheese do they make there? Oh, Tillamook makes everything. You can buy Tillamook ice cream and cheese in the grocery stores here. Yeah. But yeah. They, had a, they had some samples. That it was you're walking through the factory that you could have. 
and they had a smoked black pepper cheddar. Ooh, that sounds awesome. It was good. We may have gone through the sample line three or four extra times to get extra samples of cheese. I'm just saying. Jeez. It was really, really good. But it was it was a good time was had by all. And um, yeah, it was we liked it. It was we're well, gonna good. do it again because that's that's who we are and that's what we do, and we're a bunch of weirdos who just like running through rural Oregon. Um, let's see. Well, this is September 21st, which uh-huh. means there is still time. This I'm totally switching gears right now, but it just made my brain okay. think of all of the things. Is that KCRAR and Missouri Realtors, for I believe the third time in five years, has a finalist for the Good Neighbor Award winner for NAR. That's right. I saw that this morning. Dennis Curtin and Mimi's Pantry is up for... Um, National Good Neighbor of the Year Award, which we've had Dennis on. We've talked about Mimi's Pantry. Pantry. And I am just so excited that he's one of uh, the top 10 finalists. And they will announce uh, up through like October 3rd or 5th-ish. You can go vote every single day for the favorite charity. So get on there. Vote for Dennis. And uh, let's see if we can bring it home to Kansas City for the third time in five years. Jeez. Yeah. We've had, this will be a fourth winner because then we had Craig Conant back in right. 2001. And at the time, they were not KCRR, well, but right, they are but now. So we're totally claiming that one. Yeah. So we're doing awesome. It's amazing. Yeah. Look at Kansas City. Look at our good I think they've all been on the Missouri heart. side, too. They, they, they have been on the Missouri side. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying. What, what's going on, Kansas? Come on. Can we do some charity on, work over Kansas. in Kansas? Apparently, Kansas doesn't need charity. You all are just so good. You we're don't just, need. We're doing great. You don't need charity. There's that. So what's been going on with you? So a week ago, um, it's it's been a week today that I deleted TikTok. Oh, oh, so you Amber, you've really shocked Amber here. Amber's mind is blown. Right. So long story, but I'll keep it short. But Amber, this is going to resonate with Amber because we briefly discussed it via TikTok. So there's this really passionate little boy who loves corn. And there was, have you seen the corn kid? I don't have TikTok and I refuse. Okay. So there basically, there was a community of people. We didn't know that we were isolated within this community uh, of people who were infatuated with this little boy who was so passionate about corn. I mean, like loves corn more than anything in the world. Uh, I, I mean, I've never seen somebody love something so much. Mm-hmm. And it's so cute. And you absolutely adore this kid immediately because of his passion. Um, and this is like the magic and also the evil of TikTok. Okay. okay. So fall in love with this corn kid. He's adorable. I feel like I've seen GIFs on Facebook probably. of the corn kid. Yeah. So just okay. about like every... At that time, probably about every seven or eight videos mm-hmm. that I would be scrolling through uh, would uh, involve the corn kid in some way. Is that his name, the corn kid? I don't know what his name is, but he's the corn kid. Okay. Um, every Anybody who's anybody knows what I'm talking about. Well, I'm because... nobody, so it's cool. <laughs> I'm okay with this. I'm right, an old so, lady who's so not getting next, on TikTok. I'm not so, allowing China on my phone. I'm, I'm in, well, we're getting there. So I in, I'm in love with this corn kid. Somebody creates this absolute banger of a song okay to go with the corn kids like rant about how much he loves corn okay and it is incredible and it i it was an earworm it was stuck in my head all day can you sing it for us? every day um no we don't want that it's corn 
a big lump of knobs. It has the juice. It has the juice. I can't imagine a more beautiful thing. It's corn. I can tell you all about it. I mean, look at this thing. When I tried it with butter, everything changed. Dang. That's the song. Okay? I think we need to have you sing on the podcast more often. No, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. But, but so I'm Ooh, in love with this. We should do a karaoke episode. Sorry. Just say, this is an important thing, okay? Because this is like the United States is in danger. Okay. Well, I know that the that's corn like. Kid? Okay, just, I'm going. Let I'm me, listening. Let me keep going, okay? Because <laughs> this is important. <laughs> corn and TikTok and the United States <laughs> so, security. So, Got it. Go. Here we go. So uh, anyway, so this song, total banger, mm-hmm. like in my head constantly. Is that a new phrase? It's a total banger. I feel like I really. That means it's a great song. Okay. Amber didn't know that either. So I feel a little better. I was saying that's not new. Oh, banger. That's oh. D- definitely a thing. I've so never heard. Banger that's a banger. Like, great song. Yeah. That's like, that's. Wow. You're old. So, I am. <laughs> so basically, the song's in my head. Okay. And what's amazing about TikTok is that once something like that becomes a trend, even when it's inside of like a super tight community that Amber and I were in, because we were corn kid lovers, right? Um, basically. I cannot take you seriously right now. I'm serious. I know. And I, I, know, it's, I know it sounds corn and kid it lovers, is funny got it. and it's slightly self-deprecating, but, it, but this is real. So um, – Companies jump on the bandwagon and they start participating in these trends, right? And so every other video at this point is somebody doing something with the Corn Kids song now. Got it. Right? And so, I mean, it is so in my head and people are so creative. That's one of the magical parts about TikTok. Mm -hmm. Well, here comes the evil part of TikTok. Have you heard of Scrub Daddy? Nope. This podcast oh, the Scrub is, Daddy, the, like the little the yeah. happy, smiley, scrubby yeah, things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and this episode is not at all sponsored by but Scrub, Scrub Daddy. Daddy. But <laughs> I don't know why I felt the need to clarify that. <laughs> but so, Just so your attorneys don't contact us, we are not sponsored by Scrub Daddy. So, so uh, there was a video that pops up and it's of the Scrub Daddy sponge mm-hmm. singing the corn song. Okay. And it's sponsored. So as you see down below, it's a sponsored ad. But I'm like, oh, yes. Cor- Scrub Daddy gets it. Mm-hmm. Like they are part of my corn kid community. Okay. I need to buy a Scrub Daddy because they get me. Oh. Because they understand how awesome the corn song is. And I'm like, that's really how your brain went. I need to support Scrub Daddy because they support for just Corn a Kid. Only for just a second, okay? And I'm like, okay, this is awesome. I love Scrub Daddy. Like, it's so cool that they're on this. And then, you know, every other video a little bit, and then like every third Corn Kid thing is a sponsored ad of some like product okay. that is trying to be shoved down my throat because it's the Corn Song, and I delete the app immediately. It totally freaked me out. Because I like, I started putting, I sound insane, like I need a tinfoil hat. But I started putting together like how this infiltrated my brain. Right. So then I start like, before I delete the app. Did you order a scrub daddy before you deleted the app? I did not. No, I didn't. I did not order anything or spend any money as a result of the corn kid. Okay. But what I did do is I went on to my screen time app on my phone. Mm -hmm. How much time? Scary. Okay. Like multiple hours a day on tiktok okay and amber's like yeah yeah <laughs> i mean what else are you gonna hours. do i've got two kids at mm-hmm. home i've got a wife who's still cleaning bottles for 45 minutes a night and like i'm laying on the couch and it's like literally an opium den 
I'm just laying there, my eyes glazed over, scrolling through videos, like chuckling to myself, like not even out loud. And then, and then like the way that my wife and I were communicating would be I would just send her a message with the TikTok video. And that's how we shared laughs. Got it. You know, like it was bad. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is sick. I'm sick. I'm deleting this app. Now, like, I, I also understand. It's brilliant. There's so much creativity, but obviously so much evil, too, right? Like, right. If, you can, if you can make me think for even half a second that I should buy a scrub daddy, you know, I'm not a total moron. What can you... I like you qualified that. What, what do you think... <laughs> I'm not total moron, right? I know. That was I, the qualifier, right. the total. But I, there are... Imagine how you can manipulate people using right. that kind of incredible algorithm and that kind of, uh, you know, it, it's amazing. This is a, it's a scary thing. Yeah. It's, I've only ever seen TikToks if someone texts it to me and then I watch it, but I've, I've always refused to, to download the app. I just, I won't do it. And I'm just, and I think part of it is for me, it's like, it's not the whole, like, I don't want China on my phone because I'm 1 million percent confident China is on my phone, oh, yeah, they're, like one hundred percent. It's like I just so don't want the time else. suck. I know me. I yeah. know that I can go down rabbit Total holes really suck. easily, and well, so if I just don't have it, I can't go down that. That's route. actually what the 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 biggest takeaway was. I, I made a reference to an opium den. Yeah, literally as addictive mm-hmm. as opium. I would believe that. Yeah, I mean the dopamine that is triggered. Right. It it, it is literally as addictive mm-hmm. as opium. I would believe that. And you know what's really interesting? I just realized this as we're talking is that the book bit that I have for this episode ties back to all of the social media companies, the Facebook, the Twitters, all of that. It's there really – I just all of a sudden was like, wait a second. I actually picked a really and good I, book bit I for this. Not that. knowing you were telling yeah, – I knew that. You totally so I was, knew you were ready for the TikTok story. I was story. setting this whole thing up for your book bit. Yeah. Were you? <laughs> no, were you really? Not at all. <laughs> do, 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 do. Bobby's book bit. Casey. You know, I'm discovering the one thing that I don't like about being back in studio is I can't mute myself. <laughs> you know, when we're at home and we're on uh, whatever that thing is called, Zoom, wow, my brain, I can mute myself so I can make noises or move things. And I can't, I cannot do that but in studio. I, I love it because I have far fewer distractions. Right. And I can just like straight oh, no. up focus. I agree. Right? So, all right. So this week's episodes, whatever, book bit is actually the newest book I have read. And it's actually still sitting in my car. Like it is that freshly yeah. read. It was a book I received for Christmas from my husband, and it's Chaos Monkeys by Antonio Garcia Martinez. And the book is just a fun, behind-the-scenes look at um, the weird, mysterious, and sometimes questionable practices that go on behind the door, behind closed doors of the mega startups mm-hmm. back in Silicon Valley. So this guy, he actually was with Wall Street right before the collapse, and then he went and did a startup and went through an entire venture there, and he worked for Facebook, and he worked for Twitter, and he's done a whole lot of things. But my quote from the book that I really liked was, ideas without implementation or without an exceptional team to implement them are like buttholes and opinions. Everybody's got one. By the way, Amber, I did clean up my, the, the, the quote actually is not that word, but I cleaned it up for the episode. So there we go. So that we get a red E, not a red X. I don't want to know right, what a red X is. No more yeah. red Xs. So we have the, the three lessons from the book is that lesson number one, startup employees sometimes enter into fake marriages just so they can move to Silicon Valley for work. And there was a whole <laughs> big thing in the book about all of these people 
um, who had to get married in order to have their visas so they can stay here. Oh, wow. And it talks about how only 8% of all the 200,000 applicants trying to get to work in Silicon Valley actually received one. However, if they go and they get married to someone, they're automatically get their F2 student spouse visa that allows them to stay in the U.S. So it is really not rare at all for startup employees to enter into fake marriages just so they can work in Silicon Valley. That's interesting. It is. Um, the second one, the second lesson is if you want to build a company that makes it, there's no way you can't be crazy and obsessed. And I liked this lesson because it comes back to real estate. And it talks about if you just want to build a normal business, you have to be crazy enough to refuse to give up on it until it works. And the main word that was used throughout the book to describe startup founders was the word obsessed. And essentially, that's what you have to be in your business if you want to make it is you've got to be obsessed with whatever it takes to make it. Um, The thing about being crazy this way is we don't mind. We're in it for the long run, the big reward, the payoff we know will come. And we'd rather die trying than to not even go for it. So can I can I just interject something? I love when you interject. Yeah. So I totally agree about like you've got to be obsessed with your business. Like you have to be. But don't say it on your social media. Oh God, no! People sound ridiculous. I'm. I want you to know that my obsession is working with you and your family. (laughs) You sound insane. Right. Stop saying that. Right. And then the third lesson in the book is that Facebook's ninja security team acts in the dark because it would be really scary to reveal the kind of stuff that they have to take care of. It gets really into depth with all the things that basically all the disgusting, gross things that they sit watching on Facebook every day and removing those items from Facebook. And it says um, the security team has created an internal group called scalps at Facebook, which lists all the taken down photos and profiles so they can at least commend each other's work. They have to have somebody that they can share this with. And it says, apart from this group, keeping a closed lid on this line of work is probably a good idea. If people knew how many scammers and sect offenders hang around Facebook, they'd probably stay away from the platform altogether. But this is just one of the many dirty secrets of Silicon Valley. So this is the book Chaos Monkey by Antonio Garcia Martinez. And I I really enjoyed reading the book. So I want to check it out. Yeah, I got it in my car. I can give it to you as soon as we're done. Okay. (laughs) All right. um, So now we need to talk about our guest. Who are we bringing on today? We are bringing on Andrew Gustafson. And who is he? He, I'll, I'll just tell you because poor Alex, I'm putting Alex on the spot right now. Yeah, He's the so curator <laughs> of um, interpretation at the Johnson County Museum, and they have an exhibit, a redlining exhibit going on right now. And I'm actually really excited that we're bringing him on because our KCRER Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee is hosting an event at the Johnson County uh, Museum on November 16th. And... Um, It's going to be there where the exhibit is being held, and the exhibit is really around the redlining and how it affected um, Kansas City. So during this um, event, you're going to have the chance as a KCRER member to view the exhibit for free. And the reason I am super excited that we're having Andrew on and that we're talking about this exhibit is that when we had the film crew in Kansas City doing the fair housing documentary – That morning that we were out filming, we discovered that this exhibit was in place and we wanted to find a way to get there and film it and to have parts of it as being a part of the documentary. We just ran out of time and we didn't have a chance to do it. And I've been wanting to highlight this. So, you know, before we had this episode, Amber said, I got somebody that I want to bring on. We didn't really know who it was till we got this. And I was like super excited whenever I discovered who our guest was and what we're going to be talking about today. So um, we're going to talk about the history of redlining in Kansas City with this exhibit and with Andrew. And I'm super excited about it. Exciting stuff. 
Yep. So we're going to we have to continually have this conversation about discrimination in real estate because it's honestly not going anywhere. I know it's 2022, but we're still having incidences after incidences after incidences. We've got to be better. We've got to learn from our past mistakes, and we've got to be better going forward. Well, and it's still shocking to me how few people really understand the history. They understand the textbook definitions. They understand everything like that because the, they read it in their like pre-licensing book. But they but read they it as really, happening somewhere else, not happening right. right here, right where people we are, and you can still don't see really it. Really understand it. Yep. That's true. I That's agree. True. All right, let's go out and get Andrew and bring it back in. Welcome back to Kansas City Real Talk, brought to you by KCRIR. We are here with our guest, Andrew Gustafson. I totally just messed that up, didn't I? Gustafson. Gustafson. There you go. That's good. I, I realized I was saying it way too fast, and I could not slow my tongue down. You are the curator of interpretation at the Johnson County Museums. That's exactly right. Awesome. We are so – and I was just telling – them before you got on here. Uh, we just filmed a fair housing documentary in Kansas City. The day we were filming it, we discovered your exhibit and we just didn't have time to run over there and include it. Yeah. So I was super excited that we're bringing you on today to talk about it. So talk to us a little bit about your experience um, as the curator of interpretation and where this idea for the exhibit came from and how you guys have put it together. Sure. Yeah. So the exhibit is Redlined Cities, Suburbs and Segregation. Um, it's up in the museum space, part of admission, and it's up through January seventh. We use our temporary exhibit space, our special exhibit space, to really take a deep dive into different topics that are in the main exhibit called Becoming Johnson County. And so we've talked about redlining and um, issues of discrimination and things in that exhibit since we've been in the new building, the old King Louis building, right? Um, And even before at the old location. Um, And so this was part of our lineup for exhibits, taking a deep dive on suburbanization. And that is Mm -hmm. a large part of the system of redlining. So uh, we researched for about, I, I was project lead on this, and with the team, we researched for about a year and a half um, and then worked over the next half of a year to put that exhibit together, design it graphically and uh, fabricate it and put it up. And it's up for an entire year. And it looks at the long history of redlining from just foundations just after the Civil War all the way up really through the modern era, looking at legacies mm. that still impact communities around the nation. Um, and Kansas City and Johnson County sort of have a special role in yep. this history. There's a lot of foundational um, parts um, and also some things that are happening locally to try to remedy a lot of the disparities mm-hmm. that came from this system. So, Now, I have a question for you, and I probably should know this in the back of my head. But are there parts of this exhibit that are tied back to the Dividing Lines tour that the Johnson County Mm. Public Library put out? Is there some crossover between those two? Because we've actually done the driving tour as a part of one of our podcasts and – that I see the parallels between the two. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it, the content absolutely uh, is tied. Uh, there's no formal relationship between the exhibit and that um, that great driving tour that the library put out. They are a program partner, though. We have about two dozen cultural organizations as program partners um, over this year offering programming and things. But um, that is a great way to sort of see the things that we're mm-hmm. talking about in this exhibit. Yeah, um, that's kind of my brain sort of goes. is like, go see the exhibit City. and then go do the Dividing Lines driving yeah. tour. You just did the tour again recently, did, didn't you? two times in the last two weeks. That's awesome. Yeah. So you're going to take everybody to the event? New agent training. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So your new agent training, you want to make everybody go, not make, where it's going to be, it's heavily encouraged to go to the event on November 16th, which we're really excited about. Yeah. So how long is the, how long is, maybe you already said it. How long is, uh, this available? 
January. Yeah, up January. through January 7th. And we okay. opened it in January. So it's a right. full year. Full year. Um, it's our 55th anniversary year as a museum. And we don't normally do full year exhibitions. They're normally six months at most. Um, and so this is sort of a special thing. We realize that this topic is really important. Yeah. Um, it's pretty integral to Johnson County's development. And that relationship, you know, we talk about land and policy and people and regionalism are the four big themes uh-huh. in our main exhibit. Those are all of course, in the topic of redlining. And um, so we felt it was important enough to have it up that long. Um, and it's a it's a massive exhibit. There's a lot of content, but we couldn't cut the story anymore without cutting really oh, of important course. parts right. of the, the history. So forgive my ignorance. I've lived in Johnson County almost my entire life, and I didn't know anything about the Johnson County Museum until you guys opened up in King Louie. <laughs> in the old king. I'm serious. Yeah, I, did, yeah. I did. So can you t- give us a little bit about the history of the museum? I don't sure. know that many people uh, really have experienced it yet. Yeah. So its foundations go back um, into the 1930s, actually, um, with the Shawnee Indian Mission in Fairway. Um, and then that group was really interested in preserving history. And there's some relationship between that group, which doesn't exist anymore, and the Johnson County Museum, which comes about uh, in the 1960s, of course. 1960, what, two? I guess to be 55. No, that's not right. Don't don't check my mouth. I'm a hist- I'm a historian. <laughs> Um, So (laughs) anyway, in the 60s. And uh, so the building, uh, the museum used to be at the old Greenwood School in Shawnee, um, out in Western Shawnee. And uh, in 2017, we moved into the old King Louis building, which the county had purchased to create the Johnson County Arts and Heritage Center, part of um, Johnson County Parks and Rec, uh, the JCPRD, uh, we're the culture division of that. So besides the museum within that building, there's fine and performing arts, um, public art, and then um, several community partners in there too. So you can come take a dance class, an art class, a theater class, check out the museum, go to Kidscape, really popular So things. cool. Yeah, yeah. That is awesome. So how long have you lived in Johnson County? Uh, I actually don't live in Johnson County. You don't I live, live in, in Johnson Kansas County. City, okay. uh, Midtown okay. Kansas City. And I've been at the museum just about five years. It'll be five years in November. Awesome. Um, and so my role as curator of interpretation is really to help people access history. And okay. the main bulk of that work is in researching and writing and producing exhibitions and leading the team through that creative process. So this was a big one. Um, this took a lot of research. We are all uh, historians with degrees in history, um, and we've learned a lot of information, um, a lot of stuff that was new to us. Uh, people don't have a, a good grasp of what this history is and why it's important all the way through today. You know? Yeah. They think, oh, 1968 Fair Housing Act, Civil Rights Act ends the system of redlining, um, ends the idea of, you know, allowing discriminatory lending. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, there's a lot of history since 1968 right. yeah. um, that ties back to ties back to that. Well, I remember, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, but I remember being at a Missouri Realtors event in 2018. We were over in St. Louis and we brought in a presenter um, who spoke about the book, The Color of Law. Mm-hmm. And I remember I came home and I read it and I was immediately like, I had no idea this hit so close to home and just the significant history that Kansas City has within redlining. Um, And so for those of our listeners who are realtors and should know this, what is redlining and what areas of Kansas City were most affected by redlining? Yeah, great question. So redlining, we define it as the systematic disinvestment of some neighborhoods and people over others on the basis of race. Um, and it's there's a private portion to it. So companies and individuals are part of this story, mm-hmm. uh, banks and, and 
realtors and real you know real estate associations, NAREB, the National mm-hmm. Association of Real Estate Boards, was uh, an integral part of creating this system. But then there's also the federal part, so the FHA, the VA. Um, there were discriminatory lending um, mm-hmm. things within those federal policies, those mortgage programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and Even up so in 2008, there was still discriminatory lending practices still going on. Like right. uh, still in the news, yeah. yeah. And so. Um, there were these maps created. We call them redlining maps, and they're, they were created to judge um, or assess risk of investment in different neighborhoods. And new neighborhoods that were racially restricted, that had declarations of restrictions, so all those covenants that we sort of expect on mm-hmm. homes now, um, homes associations, those would all be green. Those would be good investments. The second color was blue, smaller homes, but still usually all those things. Uh, and also importantly for both of those categories, all white in the neighborhood, mm-hmm. yellow areas and red areas tended to be in the urban core. And those would be integrated neighborhoods, um, especially for red. Yellow was usually not integrated, but it wouldn't have those restrictions on it. Um, So there was risk of investment there because the home may not maintain or gain value. And so Mm -hmm. for the FHA program or the VA, those those government-backed mortgages, you might lose money there. Um, The home might go into default. For a private bank, the same risk. Um, In the redlined areas, those are areas that the homes were not considered not worth the investment to begin with. They were small, usually being rented, older, in disrepair. And then also, importantly, there were um, uh, people themselves who were considered risky. And this actually comes from NAREB, the organization, Mm -hmm. that tying skin color and value together, um, that if you're black or from a community of color, you devalue not only your own property, but the entire neighborhood comes out of that organization um, and becomes a fact to the American people, even though it is unfounded. There's never a statistical report that shows that. There's never any scholarly article that proves this, right? And um, so um, that means if you're living in a redlined area, that becomes the word, right, to be redlined, Mm -hmm. you're cut off from investment, whether it's a FHA, VA, uh, or a conventional mortgage. It would be very hard to get any type of a loan for a home or otherwise, really, in redlined areas. And so um, how this relates to suburbanization then is that funding, whether it's government or private, um, is going out to the suburbs to fund new homes and purchasing of new homes in the suburbs, especially in the post-war era. So late 40s, 1950s, 1960s, um, and the urban core is cut off Mm -hmm. from that investment, is disinvested. Um, And that takes a lot of different uh, shapes, not just homes and businesses, but, you know, not paving the streets, not picking up the trash, mm-hmm. not, you know, planting new trees if they die. All these things relate back to, you know, where the value is being placed, who's a good investment, what neighborhood is a good investment, what neighborhood will give you returns. Um, and then you end up seeing things like urban renewal that mm-hmm. go in to try to renew those areas, not investing in who lives in those previously redlined areas, but clear-cutting them and starting over, essentially. So it's a very complicated history. Right. Um, and, you know, Kansas City's role is pretty important. Um, yeah. You know, J.C. Nichols is known here, mm-hmm. of course. Um, he was also known nationally in his time. He was a product of his time, but he was shaping products of his time and also shaping national policies around this, um, really um, – perfecting those declarations of restrictions, um, the Homes Association idea, um, and spreading those through annual meetings and publications and things to other realtors to create 
segregated communities. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. His role in leadership positions is very clear. Yeah. Um, I so. believe he worked with FDR and straight, am I getting the mm-hmm. right president? Yep. Yes. Yep. The FHA and the HOLC, Homeowners Loan Corporation, those were New Deal mm-hmm. programs, you know, and New Deal programs are generally, oh my gosh, they put people back to work. And that's absolutely true, but that doesn't mean there wasn't discrimination with built course. into right. these federal programs. And so, yeah, uh, he was an advisor. In fact, uh, many of the people who were the leadership in NAREB, the National Association of Real Estate Boards, uh, they were advisors advisors to the federal government for the FHA program. Um, and then they ended up taking leadership positions within the FHA program. So those ideas of discriminatory lending, of connecting race and value together, it's built into those federal policies when they're created. You know, yeah. so. I mean, we've even taken our own ownership of our history as Realtor yeah. Association in this. Up until 1968, it was against our code of ethic, ethics to help people of color purchase homes, which is just, you think back now, that was 54 – oh, I'm doing math. 54 years ago. Yeah. Yay. Okay, so 67 was the year. <laughs> there you go. Oh, there we go. You, That's you how we it. did our math. That's great. Um, but that was not yeah, yeah. that long ago. No. No, it sure wasn't. Um, and it doesn't end in 1968, right? Um, right. The same year no. as that uh, Civil Rights Act comes out, the you know, uh, fair housing law is passed nationally to end discrimination in lending. And we still see um, unequal lending. We still see um, higher loan denial rates for communities of color than white communities. We still see steering in some yeah. places. There was a report that came out of Long Island from um, Newsweek, I think it was, about that. Um, so these practices still happen, whether they're intentional mm-hmm. or just sort of built in. Yeah. Um, the system shaped people's perceptions and shaped people's actions, and it's hard to change actions. Mm-hmm. Putting out words is really e- Putting out words is easy, but changing actions is, right. is difficult. Well, I mean, it's 2022, and there was just uh, the article that came out earlier this week that Bank of America is investing in communities that are yeah. predominantly black and Hispanic, though anyone can apply for these um, lower down payment loans. But they are targeting these neighborhoods in an or- effort to try to equalize some of the, the past inequities because we mm-hmm. still see – uh, issues with um, generational wealth and generational legacy yeah, going yeah. back to these things that happened in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and generations of people not able to get past how they were held back. So even though we're yeah. equal now, I say in air quotes because we're not still not equal, um, there's still a lot of gap to be made up. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, for us as a staff, I mean, there's hardly a week goes by where we don't see uh, a headline tied back in some way to redlining Mm -hmm. or its legacies and how they're still impacting communities. And that's one thing I think as you go through this exhibit, you'll see this now in the news. Um, You know, it's it's everywhere. It's it's in so many different facets of society. And there's a whole web wall, we call it at the end of the exhibit with these legacies that are all interconnected, you know, Mm -hmm. and goes back to those just 35 years of federal disinvestment, right? Like federally led disinvestment. Um, But those legacies are impactful and they are shaping communities and have shaped. So it's difficult to change mm-hmm. those things. Um, but um, yeah. yeah. You know, one of the interesting uh, things for me to think about uh, that, that it strikes me every time I go on that Dividing Lines tour is the uh, the risk uh, that people experienced of being redlined. Right of of living within a community that became redlined, which of course then led to blockbusting and and everything else. But the they moved, and it's really easy to look and say these are how how could you do that? Like these mm. are right, and then but their the value of their homes really were going to go down, and so that that inner conflict 
I, I can't, it's hard for me to, to put myself in those shoes and think about what would I have done? Would I have, would I have been part of the white flight? Would I have, would I have run off to the suburbs? What would I have done in that kind of a situation? Yeah. Well, and you know, for neighborhoods where people stuck it out, and mm-hmm. those neighborhoods integrated, values recovered because right. it's perception, right? It's right. not actually right. affecting values. Right. And, so, uh, and often those values end up being higher. You have more people wanting something on the market. And that sure. drives prices up, right, if you have both black and white people wanting Well, the redlining did oh, sure. affect values. Well, it if it yeah, we could ar- we could argue about that. Maybe not. Maybe <laughs> not. No, I'm curious. I think it's on more perception based yeah, because yeah. if if uh, if a professional is telling you your values are going to go down and you should sell, of course it's going to go down as that because of right, that. Right. 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 Um, so, or but did values can't. actually go down, or did people just sell out because of fear, not actual values decreasing? Well, if banks can't lend in those areas, right? But won't lend. Won't lend. Won't, yeah. Banks yeah. won't lend right. in those areas. You've got to – the yeah. going to go it's down. A, but your point about the white flight portion um, is a good one. And as I say on the tour, um, mm-hmm. you know, you can't know why people moved. Right. Uh, you know, maybe they'd been saving up and wanted to build a home and they could do it. Maybe now because of the FHA program or the VA program um, or because conventional loans ended up shaping themselves to look just like those pro, you know, those mm-hmm. programs, um, more people could access housing. And so it was possible to buy a house now for the first time for a middle class or a working class family through those programs. Or maybe they're really racist and they don't want to live in an integrated right. neighborhood. Right. All those reasons are baked in together in the program because it's discriminatory at its core. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so it almost doesn't matter because if you were going to be um, part of that program, you had to be okay with discrimination, whether you're the buyer or the builders or the realtors. Sure. Mm-hmm. They may not have known the details of that. Right. Um, but you turned but a they blind might eye. Have. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh, sorry. Yeah. Smack the table. But yes, they, <laughs> they, they might have, you know. Sure. Um, and sh- certainly people were aware of history. And especially when you get into the 60s, and this is still happening, you have fair housing fights going on. Um, right. You know. Um, people are, are are very aware of that. So, um, yeah, and white flight uh, for this area, you know, just to give some statistics for Johnson County, between 1940 and 1960, the white population increased 110,000 individuals. It increased 150 black individuals. Wow. And for John, uh, for Kansas City, uh, between 50, 1950 and 1970, it's a loss of almost 180,000 white citizens to the surrounding counties and municipalities. Sure. So huge movements of people. Wow. Yeah. Huge. And so then that leads to racial turnover, which goes back to your point about, you know, neighborhoods and integration is white people sold their homes, often at a loss and often to a real estate agent or somebody mm-hmm. um, connected um, for a loss. Then those homes would be sold often at a markup, a high markup um, to black people. Right. Um, and so you get an integrated neighborhood, but that also then drives more white flight. Yeah. Right. Um, See, I think that gets back to his point of value was – the homes were being sold, the, the white families were taking a loss, but then all of that loss got added back onto the value that then a family of color would have to pay in order to purchase the home. Like it right. was that middleman was the one that was completely taking advantage of everyone by purchasing then, your house below value and now selling it over value, yeah. which means if we average it out, it was that value. Well, they'd frequently foreclose though. Right. Well, yeah, because they've overpaid and they did. Exactly. Yeah, right. so there's a study that comes out of Duke University in 2019 looking at uh, between 1950 and 1970. It's really looking at um, contract sales. I don't know if you're familiar with like deeds for contract. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, a little too much. Yeah. <laughs> 
um, pretty risky things, pretty mm-hmm. pretty bad product, right? Yep. Um, and so they're looking at for African Americans in Chicago in that twenty year period. Oh God, they're looking um, at between seventy five and ninety five percent of all sales for Black individuals who are buying homes are contract sales, and the average markup is eighty four percent. Wow. So if they sold a home for, I think this the statistic was twelve thousand, right? Mm-hmm. The, the white person sold it for that, then the black person would buy it for twenty two thousand. Huge markup, and so yeah. their monthly payment on average in twenty nineteen dollars is like five hundred eighty seven dollars more than what a white person would be paying wow. for their mortgage wow. through that system. So for the exact same property, and that's a race tax. That's right. what it's referred right. to by uh, sociologists as a race tax. Just more because the demand is so high and there's so f- little housing available um, right. in segregated areas. So, And you can look, there's some maps in the exhibit that map that all out, that racial turnover, the changing of the neighborhoods between 1950 and 1970. And you can see it goes from a core of segregation around 18th and Vine District today, mm-hmm. you know, what's what's 18th and Vine today, to the entire east side. And Troost, of course, right. you know, that is breached only in one place in downtown. Um, so, um, yeah, it's very visible in the in the maps. Yeah. And that, that was one of the things that we talked about during our fair housing documentary that we did is that that visible line to a certain extent is still there. Like it's a few blocks each way now as opposed to specifically being true. But you still can see the effects from 100 years ago Absolutely. still showing up in mm-hmm. Kansas City today. So do you have any suggestions for what we as realtors can do to combat the effects of redlining today in 2022? That's a great question. Um well, you mentioned The Color of Law. So mm-hmm. I think there's two books that are a must for for realtors. I think Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law is a good overview of this history. If you can't make it to the exhibit, we encourage you to make it to the exhibit. Uh, <laughs> you could read that book. It's a little dense, but it's, it's a pretty mm-hmm. good book. Um, and then also there's a new one out by Gene Slater um, called Freedom to Discriminate. And okay. it looks at really the real estate industry or the profession's role in mm-hmm. all of this. And, and also later on, we didn't really get into fighting fair housing, but there were real estate associations, especially California's, that were actively fighting against uh, policies that were coming out. So I think those two uh, books are a good grounding in this mm-hmm. if you want to get into the history. Um, and then, I'm going to add one more book to your list, yeah. if you're okay with that. Yeah, yeah. Because we've talked about it on the podcast before, and it's um, by Tanner Colby, Some of oh. My Best Friends Are Black, because yeah. the entire housing section is focused on Kansas City. Yep, you know, right. Birmingham School all the others, but it's a really... It's a for, really readable book, too. Exactly. That's what I, I always <laughs> suggest to Richard people. Rothstein like, it's like not, unfortunately. But. And that's why it's funny you use the word dense because that's always the word I use to describe Color of Law. It's a very dense book. It's a little difficult to get through, but it's completely worth it when you do make it through. But your little primer before it is to read, you know, Some of My yeah. Best Friends Are Black by Tanner Colby because there's a, some, it's much more easy great to digest. It's a great book. Uh, and also, you know, f- if you don't want to read The Color of Law, there's a, a video called Segregated by Design that's based on that. It's about an 18-minute video. Um, and the Kansas City, Kansas Public Library also hosted Richard Rothstein for a talk. Um, they did, were reading that book over several weeks in a, in a read out loud group, and then they had him for a, a presentation. I believe that's still available online, oh, awesome. too. So good ways to, to I'll access go look that, that, up, that information. I love Richard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, the Dividing Lines Tour uh, being – I mean, I know you all do trainings and, mm-hmm. you know, I think most real estate agents are very aware of this this history. I don't know. know. You know, I would hope through trainings. I don't know. Maybe that's I not disagree. True. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't then, think I don't. I feel like they are widely, wildly unaware of of so much of this history. I think that they understand textbook definitions. Mm. I don't think that they uh, really understand. I appreciate that honesty. Yeah. No, I, I think until you, I mean, uh, I've been in this industry since I was eight, and it wasn't until 2018, you know, four years ago, that I actually understood our history. And now I'm from up in St. Joe. 
So, which is, we have our own issues up in St. Joe, but it's like, I even as a leader within our association had no clue until I read Color of Law and all of a sudden my eyes were opened and I was like, I didn't know what I didn't know, but now that I know it, I have to do something about it. That's, yeah. I'm no longer okay being quiet and being, because, you know, what, what is the quote is that, you know, the those that are silent basically take the side of the oppressor Mm. as opposed to those who speak up and use their voice. Mm. So I, similarly, I grew up in Spring Hill, Kansas. And, and so it's not, not that that's far away, but it isn't part of the history. I mean, I'm sure it is, but it isn't. It's just, yeah, it's just different. Um, So we, we have to expose ourselves to the history in order to really understand it. And I don't think that people take the, especially if you live far away, mm-hmm. it's really hard to take the time to to really learn about it. Yeah. Well, then I think it's essential to go beyond just the trainings that are required then. Um, mm-hmm. If there's not sort of a base understanding mm-hmm. or just the textbook understanding, then I think, yeah, making yourself engage in more than what's required um, right. is, yeah. is really important. Um, and then, you know, thinking about how you say things, what you say. I'm not trying to be prescriptive. I'm a historian. No. Um, yeah. So, you know, um, but I think... Um, yeah, just being a, more aware of all of that because this history has shaped perceptions and shaped the way we think and talk about certain areas mm-hmm. and yeah. groups of people and things, and we may not even be aware of that right. um, in our own ways that we think and, and right. process. Sure. So. You know, it's, and it's interesting you use the word perceptions because we know perceptions become reality for a lot of people. Yeah. However, I yeah. see something as how it actually is. Well, that's what economics is based on is human behavior. Exactly. Well, and they talk about this as self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecies, right? Yeah, exactly. If you say this area is not right. worth investment and you don't then invest it. Then it won't be. <laughs> that's There's exactly no right. There's no way for it. Exactly. And I, that doesn't mean that that's the way that it should be. Right. Right. But that's right. what happens that's what because it is. that's how economics works. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, Andrew, we want to be respectful of your time. And my last question I always ask all of our guests is, what else? What else should we have asked you? What else should we be talking about? What else do our listeners need to know? Yeah. Well, I appreciate the time uh, coming on. Yeah. And I think, you know, so there's a website, a webpage for this exhibit, jcprd.com slash redlined okay. with a D at the end. Um, and that talks about, it has some of those sources that we were talking about, resources there to learn more. Um, it talks about our programming. We have several programs coming up, two of them about legacies, one about the Blue River watershed, which is a deeply divided watershed, mm-hmm. very natural on the Johnson County side, heavily industrialized and now uh, polluted on the Kansas City side. So there'll be a, a panel discussion about that with some some area experts. There'll be one, in, that's in September, and one in October about uh, social determinants of health, the uh, things these that disinvestment has led to oh. opportunities within different communities, the disparate oppor- hmm. opportunities. Okay. Um, and then there's also, as I mentioned, partner programming. And so I think for your audience, as we were just talking about, accessing that programming mm-hmm. um, and watching it or going to it, I think is a great way to to learn more and to engage in this um, outside of just what's required of us right. um, in our jobs. So Awesome. Thank you, Andrew, for coming and being a guest. I'm actually looking forward to our event on November 16th. We'll get Amber to look up the dates of those other two events, the one in September, if it's before this podcast comes out on the 21st. Oh, on the 15th. Okay, so never mind, but we'll talk about the October one. We'll look that at (laughs) this this episode comes out September 21st, but we'll look up those dates and include that in the description for the podcast so that our members can know that that's an opportunity for them on October and then in November. Yeah, sounds great. And I'll see you in November. I'll be there. Yeah, great. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you so much. (laughs) 